0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. My name is Vasilis Dousas. I'm the Senior International Relations Policy Advisor at FEPS. And I'm very, very happy to welcome Matt Duss, Foreign Policy Advisor to U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, to the program. Matt, a warm welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to be here, Vasilis. How are you doing? Good. And we have a lot to discuss, to focus on. We are, of course, having this chat uh, when just days ago we marked the 20th anniversary of September eleventh. And uh, this becomes all the more poignant following the momentous developments uh, that took place in Afghanistan some short weeks ago. I want our discussion today to focus on the significance of the historical moment that we find ourselves in. But let me first start with what happened in Afghanistan and the withdrawal of Western forces. I mean we saw some heartbreaking images on the tarmac and at the perimeter fence of the Kabul airports and of course the announcements of the Taliban following their takeover that we have been painfully following over the past few weeks have been equally disheartening. So Matt what's your take on the fact that after so much talk at least over the last decade, this withdrawal did happen, but also in the manner in which it did. And I'm asking this given the, at times, severe criticisms that were addressed against the Biden administration mm-hmm. from very different backgrounds for the fact that uh, the US actually withdrew, but also for how Washington designed this, implemented it, or was forced to implement it.
0: Sure. Um, well, first off, it's uh, it's good to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, second, I just want to you know, just clarify, you know, I'm here speaking in my personal capacity, I'm not representing Senator Sanders or the office. Um, though I think probably a lot of what I'll say will will echo what my, what my boss has said about these issues. So I think your question, I mean, there's quite a bit in there. So let me just try to take it. I mean, first of all, the decision itself um, from President Biden, when he announced, I think it was back in April, you know, it echoed some of what he had said on the campaign trail, it echoed what was clearly stated in the Democratic platform of 2020. You know, others who had run in the primary, including Senator Sanders, including others, other Democrats, and frankly, including President Trump, obviously, um, have had their announced their goal of withdrawing the U.S. military from Afghanistan. And of course, it was Trump's administration who signed this agreement with the Taliban um, with a timeline for withdrawal. And I bring that up just to clarify that, I mean, this decision is strongly supported by the American people. And I think, you know, we can get into some of the, the issues surrounding how the actual withdrawal was managed, but I do think it's very important. And I think this helps explain President Biden's approach, which is that, you know, this has been the longest war in the history of the United States. And I think it's become clear that the American people had essentially withdrawn their support for continuing this war. And I think that's very important because our system, our constitution, you know, it empowers the Congress to declare war or authorize uh, military force, but also just the idea that we, you know, we will enter into these conflicts if and when we do with the support of the American people. And I think many leaders, including Trump, including Biden, rightly assessed that the American people had no longer supported this. Um, and it was simply wrong to try and continue um, this war for a whole range of reasons. But the fact that Americans no longer supported it was a very important one. You know, we can also get into you know some of the efforts that were made at, at nation building, at counterinsurgency, over the last 20 years, various efforts, various surges of troops, various efforts to stand up you know, kind of democratic institutions in, in Afghanistan. You know, and I think what we've seen over the past few weeks, um, not only criticism of the Biden administration's managing of the evacuation, I think some of which are, are are quite justified. I think there are very fair and legitimate criticisms to be made of, for example, like the slowness of the visa process, uh, managing the the exit of a number of Af- Afghanistans, not only those who work with us, but others who just wanted to, to, to leave the country for whatever reason. Having said that, though, I do think it's worth noting that losing a war is ugly and that is what we saw here. I mean, by saying that, I don't mean to diminish at all the human costs, the the painful images that we saw. I mean, we cannot, we have to look at that squarely. But I also think what we saw, in in my view, what we saw and heard from Washington, from the kind of foreign policy commentary at the foreign policy establishment, you know, officials from previous administrations, was an attempt to basically absolve themselves of responsibility for two decades of a failed war. Two decades of a policy that killed tens of thousands of Afghan civilians. You know, even if, you know, there was stability in some of these urban centers, the war was ongoing in the rural areas of Afghanistan, which is to say the vast majority of Afghanistan's territory, where you would have five, six, a dozen people, often members of the same family, killed in a lot of these airstrikes, you know, UAV strikes. Um, you know, skirmishes with the Taliban. So, you know, what I see is an effort to kind of dump all of this in the Biden administration's lap. Now, having said, yes, there are some, I think, fair criticisms to be made, but all in all, this was a, a broadly shared failure of the Washington foreign policy establishment over many years. And, you know, it, it would be, a I think, a compounded tragedy if that was, uh, you know, successfully used to avoid, I think, the very, very deep introspection and accountability ultimately that I would hope we would find at at this moment, not only at the end of this war, but 20 years after 9-11. And again, even with those words coming out of my mouth, it it feels kind of silly, because accountability is something that we absolutely never have in Washington. It is, you know, account. I mean, the impunity, elite impunity, I think is one of the biggest problems we face in Washington, uh, not only in foreign policy, but particularly in foreign policy. And I think what we've seen, the kind of massive kind of eruption of criticism of Biden for the the conduct of this, of this withdrawal, I think is a reflection and attempt to kind of avoid that. Just a quick
1: take on the Republicans who cried foul of the way it happened.
0: I mean, what to even say there? I mean, they were largely supportive of of Trump, you know, when he, his administration made the agreement, I think it was 2019 or 2020. You know, so a lot of this is just politically, you know, it's just opportunistic. And you see that often on both sides. But I think You know, there are definitely some Republicans um, who just support a much more expansive global military hegemonic role for the United States. And that's shared by a lot of the Democratic foreign policy establishment as well. But I do think that, you know, there were also Republicans who generally agreed with the withdrawal, but also saw the opportunity just to kind of um, criticize Biden. But in my view, my view was, you know, over the past few weeks, and it continues to be that Americans support the withdrawal. So again, we will and we should kind of consider some of the decisions that were made, the time when they were made, some of the mistakes that were made with regard to the actual evacuation. But in general, I think this decision was still the correct one. Um, my boss authored an op-ed back in April with Congressman Rokana saying that um, it's actually a courageous decision because we see why political leaders are afraid of making these kinds of momentous decisions because they will be attacked. You know, after years and years of Washington, Washington essentially ignoring what was going on in Afghanistan, all of a sudden everyone was paying attention and asking these very tough questions that they had avoided asking for the previous 10, 15 and 20 years. Uh, so for Brian, Biden to press forward on this decision, I, I do think was uh, pretty brave.
1: Thanks, Matt. But of course, the imagery that came out of Afghanistan was shocking to most. And the way the evacuation happened, some calling it hasty, some even called it shambolic. And I should add that the European leaders themselves have done very little to conceal their frustration on the way uh, things happened. But for some critics, whether it was reasonable criticism or opportunistic, as you said, the exact timing of this withdrawal added insult to injury because it almost coincided with what you said, the 20th anniversary Mm. since September 11th. Now, two decades ago, the U.S. suffered the worst terror attack in its history, an attack that I believe to this day still has a very enduring impact. Act, and in an attack that we can all agree that sparked a fundamental shift in U.S. foreign policy, at least towards yes. the Middle East. But fast forward today with U.S. and allied troops out of Afghanistan, do you think we can talk of a, of a closing of historical circle? And I'd, I'd be curious to also hear your thoughts as to what you think Afghanistan, both in terms of the particular country and the history of U.S. involvement in it, but also in terms of it being a symbol of Western foreign policy direction Mm -hmm. over the past few decades. So what do you think Afghanistan signifies for the US, for Europe, for the West in general? And I'm saying the West because... The U.S.-led intervention in the country that began 20 years ago was very much defined by this quest for a liberal international order that was pursued by the West.
0: I mean, well, first off, going to what you said about, you know, the resonance of the last few weeks, especially on the anniversary of 9-11, I think that's right. And it was certainly, I mean, if you go back to the, you know, the timing of the announcement, the Biden administration wanted to be out of Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary by all accounts they imagined that the Afghanistan government would be able to hold on for at least you know 6 months a year maybe even longer that's what all the intel you know that we've seen reported was telling them and that obviously was wrong Um, I think the fact that the intel got it so wrong is, in my view, another point in favor of, of ending this military intervention. If we couldn't even understand how quickly the Afghanistan government that we had spent 20 years and trillions of dollars or at least hundreds of billions of dollars trying to stand up, you know, it's fair to ask, what what were we still doing there? But again, I think, yes, the timing of this ahead of 9-11 was unfortunate, to put it lightly. As to what it means, I mean, the question about 9-11, the war on terror, the 9-11 era, I don't think the book is closed. I think this particular intervention this military intervention has been ended, but we are still very much in the post 9-11 era. If you look at, you know, the other, the use of, of military forces, special forces, you know, airstrikes, UAV strikes, the U.S. continues to carry out in far flung areas of North Africa, the Middle East and elsewhere, this logic of endless war. We are pleased, you know, as a progressive and, and my boss as well, who has raised the problem of endless war, the forever war, as some call it, the fact that Biden is using this rhetoric uh, is important. But I think Afghanistan is only one piece of the forever war. It's not only, and it's not just a broad series of military interventions of various sizes and scopes. It is a mentality that says that we have to be at war against this terrorist enemy everywhere all the time, eternal vigilance, the use of military force, the kind of degradation of international humanitarian law and various norms of warfare regarding detention, interrogation, the support for repressive, brutal authoritarian regimes in the name of security. Security, this is what is still very much with us. In some ways, it's gotten worse. I would recommend here an excellent book by my good friend, the uh, the journalist Spencer Ackerman called Reign of Terror, which reports... Um, not only nine starting at 9-11, but before 9-11, some of the, you know, the, the right-wing militia movements that we saw in the United States. But basically, the argument of the book is that the 9-11 helped deliver Donald Trump, the kind of approach, not just the actual policies that were pursued, but the kind of rhetoric and the political discourse that arose mm-hmm. around the war on terror, helped produce, you know, not just Trump, but I think kind of right-wing authoritarian ultra-nationalist movements in many places around the world, particularly in Europe. And I think that is what we have to confront
1: in the future. But don't you think it does signify a decreasing willingness, at least on the part of uh, the U.S., to intervene, at least in the way that it did some, well, 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. Don't you think there's a meaningful change in the approach, not least of the Biden administration, but um, I'm talking about the general direction in U.S. foreign policy going forward?
0: I hope there is. You know, I would hope that we've understood that these kinds of large scale military interventions occupying entire countries and trying to transform their political systems and their societies is something we lack the ability to do. Now, having said that, I do think there is a danger of sort of overcorrection. And it's possible to, you know, that I think some critics and some like supporters of global military hegemony You know, want to basically see there's two options. Either we dominate the world militarily or we're being isolationist. And I think that's obviously an absurd binary. Um, I think there are lots of things that the United States and our allies in Europe and elsewhere can do that are very interventionist, that are very expansive. And we need to do them. And here I'm talking about providing for global vaccines, providing for debt relief, you know, providing for, you know, green and sustainable development technologies, you know, working um, in countries in the global south that have suffered the most um, from the pandemic that have suffered the most from the kind of neoliberal order that puts them deeply into debt while, while benefiting a small elite uh, that controls the resources of their country. But that is going to take a much more expansive and aggressive, and I would say courageous, uh, level of leadership from the United States, on the part of our partners and allies, you know, what we call the West. But I think that ultimately is the sort of expansive vision that really is going to save us.
1: Matt, from what you are saying, am I right in deducing that you do discern some elements in how the U.S. under President Biden might move forward? Because we saw the determination of the Biden administration, the president Mm -hmm. himself, to essentially shed some old international commitments as they are embracing Uh, perhaps a new strategy. So I was wondering if you could share with us your insights as to what you think might substantiate the Biden doctrine, if we can call it that, Uh, seeing also that we have entered, either by choice or by need, a new age of perpetual competition, uh, brutal competition among great powers, and the U.S. and China rivalries at that very center of that competition.
0: Yeah, and I think the way you put it shed you know, shed some of these conflicts, I would say, you know, with Afghanistan is to understand some of these were losing. Uh, Again, I don't want to dehumanize the situation, but I think the way you put it was good. I mean, some of these longstanding military interventions and these investments were not providing for the security and the prosperity of the American people. And I think what we've seen from the Biden team, particularly if you think if you look at some of the remarks and some of the writing of Jake Sullivan, the the National Security Advisor, and the way he's talked about foreign policy for the middle class is understanding that you know foreign policy and again this is something that my boss shares and my boss Senator Sanders has talked about a lot as well is you know the way that foreign policy has been talked about and made in Washington has become largely detached from the real concerns of of many many Americans and they feel with i think good reason that you know this that, that foreign policy is kind of an elite sport um, that people they go to to conferences in Europe and they they talk about you know they you know they they drink champagne and they talk about these really important things and they're not really caring that much about these devastated communities in the United States devastated by by drugs devastated by you know by deindustrialization losing jobs to other countries and that reconnecting the practice of foreign policy to those communities and showing how all of these policies can and do deliver. For American families, for American workers, and for American communities, is very, very key to kind of defending our own democracy. Um, I mentioned those authoritarian, kind of ultranationalist forces previously, but part of what they exploit, and this is obviously true of Trump as well, is that sense that elites don't care about you. You know, they are in it for themselves. Um, they're taking care of their kids. They're sending their kids to fancy colleges and giving their kids the fancy internships and jobs. And your kids, your family. Your communities are all being left behind because the system is rigged against you. So I think the project that the Biden administration is pursuing here, and I think it's a very good one, is to show that Washington is listening and your government, your national government, is looking for ways to make your life better um and i think they've made some important steps like with the covid relief package you know what's being formulated right now this infrastructure bill combined with the 3.5 trillion budget package that my, my boss is is leading on on crafting i mean these are hugely consequential for that project
1: thanks matt and you're very much right in underscoring the importance of starting the good foreign policy work that needs to uh, take place going forward at home. There's a huge amount of homework that needs to be done before we go out To the world and start promoting an agenda, protecting human rights, promoting democracy, pursuing this fight against autocracy, as you said, against authoritarian regimes. But there is that external dimension as well. And I'd like to ask you on how you think such an agenda of democracy promotion of promoting Western values, if you want pushing back against authoritarian regimes, against autocratic leaders, assuming it's still very important for the agendas of both Europe and the U.S. How do you see this agenda in our multipolar age being implemented? And I should add an age that is very much marked by the return, as I said, of brutal geopolitical competition.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And let me just kind of take you know, respectfully just push back. I mean, when we talk about authoritarians, like I would just say it's not only authoritarian regimes, right? It's authoritarian movements within our own countries um, that are just as important, in my view, frankly, more important to that larger struggle. And I I would point to a piece that, that Senator Sanders wrote in Foreign Affairs a few weeks ago, cautioning against buying into this side of court kind of Cold War mentality against China, Um, Where one of the points he made in there is that the fight between democracy and authoritarianism, the primary battlefield for that conflict is within states, not between them. Um, And I think if we play into this great power conflict framing, as we saw with the war on terror, the idea that we are going to forge real political consensus and political unity under this umbrella of conflict. Is very dangerous. It's something that will ultimately undermine progressive values. It will not advance progressive values. Um, so I say that as a note of caution. Now, again, I think there are certain things, you know, when we talk about authoritarian regimes like China's, like, like many Western allies, <laughs> like the Saudis, like the Emiratis, I mean, there are different tools and, and ways we can approach these questions to kind of, you know, bring attention, bring a spotlight, and bring pressure. Um, on some of these policies and and practices. But I think, you know, first of all, you know, going back to kind of the beginning of the conversation, let's look at the effort over the past 20 years to kind of export whatever democracy or, or good government to places like Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, have a real, think very hard about why and and how that actually failed when we're looking at what we can do to kind of support and champion values. And I would not necessarily call them Western values. I would just say human, shared human values of dignity and solidarity and real human security is, first of all, to model them. And again, it's easy to, to, and that's not a cheat. You know, that's not just trying to get out of of doing these things internationally. But I I, I do think what is most important is to show that we are practicing human rights and democracy, you know, as a way of kind of being seen as legitimate and convincing when we champion these ideas on the global stage. So again, I'm not saying we must do one before we can do the other. I'm just saying that if we want to support these values and ideas in international institutions and, and rally a global consensus and strengthen a global consensus in favor of human rights and human dignity and solidarity, that effort will be vastly helped by being seen as doing it and putting the effort in, in our own countries.
1: Matt, drawing on your expression earlier on about elites uh, drinking champagne and designing how to best promote their own interests, indeed, I agree. Us transatlantic partners have often drank champagne amongst ourselves while preaching water internationally. And I, I do feel that we need to correct that. But in terms perhaps of the, of the homework that Europe needs to do. I'd like a final comment from you on where all of this leaves Europe. I mentioned that European leaders were deeply frustrated about the lack of coordination in Afghanistan and the uncertainty concerning the way forward, of course. But we've also heard European Union leaders and the uh, European Commission president herself, the high representative, having variously expressed their desire to pursue strategic autonomy, something that Mm -hmm. Europe needs to do by itself. So what's your take on this?
0: We will actually was in Germany a few weeks ago, so I got to hear some of this firsthand from, from German colleagues. And again, I think some of the concerns and criticisms about the management of the withdrawal are legitimate and fair. On the other hand, I do think it's worth recognizing that the evacuation that did took place of over 100,000 people, there's, I mean, that's was very impressive. I think there's no other country that could have managed that, could have been overall managed better. Yes, uh, we, we have to grant that. Now, I think with regard to Europe's strategic autonomy, it, I mean, again, if, if Europe wants to take greater create greater autonomy and invest more in its own defense. I think the United States should welcome that. I think it's possible to do that while still building and strengthening you know the transatlantic relationship which is obviously continues to be very very important to Europe and to the United States. It's still very much foundational I think to uh, the United States strategic concept even as the United States continues to invest more in kind of Asia in relationships in Asia and the Pacific. But I do think we're in a moment right now where we're trying to find some clarity about what we are actually trying to achieve. You know, I think we saw, you know, obviously NATO, uh, in Afghanistan, I, at first blush, it was like, well, why, why would Afghanistan be relevant to a North Atlantic Treaty Organization? But I think it was, you know, in, in, in some ways, just a recognition, you know, these shared threats are, are global threats, and thus it was applicable for NATO to be involved in, in that effort. But I also think what we need to draw from this moment is what other tools do we have beyond the military to meet some of these challenges? And again, I I already mentioned, you know, vaccines and other things like that, shared work on climate and green tech, I would say anti-corruption is another thing that I think is hugely important. Um, I'm gratified that at least rhetorically, the Biden administration has talked a lot about anti-corruption. We're still waiting to see what they're going to do in terms of actual policy. But I think if we're talking about cleaning our own houses, I mean, this is something where the European countries and the United States in particular are enormously culpable, you know, because we're the ones running the laundromat for a lot of these (laughs) corrupt regimes where this is where they hide their money. It's going into real estate in London, in New York, in Miami. It's going into these, uh, um, these, these offshore accounts elsewhere. So I think As we think through what the US-Europe security relationship is going to look like, I would hope and expect there will be a much kind of broader conversation about what are the tools of security that we actually have available. And they are much, much more expansive.
1: Uh, Than just the military. Matt, many thanks. Um, It's clear enough. Uh, Let me just finish our conversation with a more personal question. If you can share with us briefly uh, a personal story these years you've spent working in Congress, think tanks, that you think left the deepest mark on you concerning these past 20 years of the US forever war, as you called it in Afghanistan
0: there's a lot of things i could say but one thing that i you know i will say here in terms of the role that the united states can play was when i was working with senator sanders on the yemen war powers resolution you know and the opportunity we had to meet with some yemeni human rights advocates you know very brave folks a young woman and a young man yemenis who had been working on the ground talk you know investigating human rights abuses by all the various sides fighting in yemen and you know, Senator Sanders putting some of those comments and those reflections from these activists in a speech that he later gave on the floor of the United States Senate, and using and I, and I just saw that as a great way of using you know, the power that the United States government has that a U.S. senator has in lifting up some of the work that these activists are doing in their own country to make their country better. And I think looking at that as a way, you know, what when I talk about the tools of of foreign policy, the tools of security we have really looking at ways, I mean, that was one speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate, but it really, it it did you know, do some real good, I think, to elevate some of the work that these activists were doing. And I think looking for ways to lift up the work of civil society activists, extremely brave human rights activists and democracy activists and reformers are doing in, in, in countries across the world really needs to be a focus of progressives in all of our countries. So I, I would say just this all comes back to the question, the, the word solidarity. Um, and as progressives, I think that's sort of the guiding, the approach that, that I would support. And 20 years after nine eleven, I think we, really need that. Um,
1: many thanks, Matt. And with this answer, I'm afraid our time is up. I would like to thank you for being with us. M- many thanks indeed. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. Uh, this was FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies uh, in Brussels. You can find the series on all podcast platforms, and please do make sure you subscribe. As I always do, I will leave you with a quote. And this time, it's a very famous quote by Antonio Gramsci, who once said of a very different era that might appear eerily similar similar to ours. The old world is dying, and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Thank you all for listening. Have an excellent afternoon. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FAPSTalks. More is yet to come, stay tuned!